Suhba means companionship, fellowship, and mentorship. At Suhba Institute, our mission is to accompany and inspire individuals along their journey of growth by providing quality, nurturing, and easily accessible Islamic learning that is applicable to our ever-changing lives and circumstances. For more information, visit suhba.com. That's S-U-H-B-A-H dot com. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulihi wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Amma ba'd. So I first want to start out with a story. Fatima and Salma walk into the masjid. So this is not the beginning of a joke, but the beginning of the experience of women in the masjid. So Fatima and Salma walk past the amazing, beautiful wood embellished doors, past the men's section, around the alleyway, past the dumpster, into a inconspicuous door which has the women's section written on it. They walk into this area and they take off their shoes, they go into the women's area, and the khutbah is going on, but they cannot see the imam. They cannot see the rest of the congregation because it's a boxed up area. And the only way for them to look into their congregation is to see on a TV screen up on the ceiling that there is a congregation happening in the other room. And the children are screaming, and the children are crying, and the children are running around. And there are women talking during the khutbah, but there's no one to tell them to stop talking because there's no imam figure that they can even see to stop them or to teach them the etiquettes of the masjid. And Fatima and Salma are trying their best to try to hear the khutbah and the prayer finally begins and the imam has started the prayer. And when Fatima is in her sujood, she feels like the sujood has been a little bit too long. It's almost 30 seconds and now she's wondering what's going on. The imam's really concentrating in this prayer. And all of a sudden she hears rustling on her side so she stands up and she finds the lady on her left is in ruku and the lady on her right is standing up in a standing position. And everyone tries to haphazardly try to finish this prayer because they realize the mic system went out and there's no way to know which part of the prayer they are in until you hear over the mic, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. The prayer has ended and all the women in the, in the women's area um, try to make up what they hope is an accepted prayer. Now after the prayer, the director of the masjid announces a new initiative. We're looking for committee members for this new initiative. Who wants to sign up? The sign up paper comes around and Fatima and Salma look on the TV screen and they wonder, am I going to get that piece of paper? Is it going to come around to our side? Fatima asks Salma and Salma says, I don't think it's making its way. Then a man comes up after the Jummah prayer and he announces that he has all of these gifts for everyone. Uh, the, the book, Hisnul um, Muslim, Fortress of the Muslim, and he's handing it out to everyone in the crowd and the women look up at the screen and they say, are we gonna also get those books? And Salma says, I don't think they're coming over to this side. The Imam after the Jummah Salah gives a short halaqa talking about the importance of the community. And he says, does anyone have any questions? And a couple of male members raise their hands and Fatima looks up at the screen and she says, do you think that I'll be able to ask my question? Salma says, I, I don't think there's any way you can. Now, while this may sound like a very far-fetched version of a masjid, this was constructed, this idea, this, this picture or snapshot of masjid was constructed based on the experiences of many, many women in masajid in the United States. I'm not even talking about masajid in other countries. Other countries where women are not even allowed in the masjid altogether, like the country in which I grew up in, in South Africa. 
But this is the snapshot of myself growing up as a young lady in the Masajid around the United States. Not even knowing what the Imam looks like, not even knowing who gave the khutbah because either there was no TV at some point or there was just a, a voice that we heard. Never being able to ask a question, never being able to, to voice our opinions, not being able to put ourselves on committees so that we can voice our opinions to let everyone know that we have thoughts and we have ideas. Now I'm not talking about this masjid or your masjid or the masjid you grew up in. I'm talking about an average of the masajid here, at least in the United States. So I want you to imagine then, we have this one picture of the masajid. I want you now to take a moment and imagine for yourself, what is the most ideal dream masjid that you could think up? Of, think up? If you were put on the board to create the next new best masjid, how would you create that masjid? What would it look like? What would it feel like? How would you feel like? I'll give you guys a moment to think about it. I'll give you a picture of my dream imaginary masjid of 2020 that I've been put with a bunch of other people on the board of directors to decide to create. This is what my masjid of the future looks like. I walk through the main doors. There are two sets of main doors, one wood embellished for the men and one wood embellished for the females. I see the beautiful chandelier shining above that I had only seen from behind the walls in the women's section because we were never really given a chandelier for many, many years. And I'm walking into this masjid and I feel like a valued part of my community. I walk into the masjid and I see my imam and he greets me and he says, how is your family? How is your child? Did you get that question answered that you asked yesterday? I'm in one room, one prayer space for both the men and the women. I feel like a part of this community and not just an onlooker from a room looking at a screen. I'm a member on the Shura board and there are other women and youth and disabled people and people of different races and different walks of life and we're all helping making decisions of what our community wants. Our Imam has set up a women's only halaqa once a week just for us, no men allowed, so we can ask all of our questions without having any anxiety. There are children about playing, making noise and crying and we're all okay with that because we as a community, as a village, take care of our, of, our, of our children in the masjid and we teach them the etiquettes because they're there and that's how we teach them the etiquette of the masjid because we make them come and we tell them the importance of the masjid. There's actually shows going on in this amazing imaginary masjid. There's acrobats and activities going on in one corner of the masjid and youth and teenagers and young kids and women and men are all watching and enjoying in their masjid, enjoying a form of entertainment in their masjid. Teenagers are there on a Friday night when they could be anywhere else in this country. They are at the masjid because they feel connected. They feel this is a place that values them. In walks an alcoholic man, a traveler, a homeless man, and they are all welcomed immediately. Who are you? Are you okay? Do you need some help? The Imam says, come on, everybody, take them home, put them, give them somewhere to, to eat, give them somewhere to stay. And if there's no one ready to give them somewhere to stay, they can stay in the masjid, that's okay. For the, the man who was alcoholic, the Imam takes him in and talks to him privately and advises him, doesn't kick him out of the masjid. For the homeless woman, she is given money from the zakah and she is given a place to stay in the masjid. For the traveler, he is put up by somebody in the community. We took care of the people in our community in this safe space, in this masjid that is a shelter that is a safe place away from all the struggles and the difficulties in the world that has not been so forgiving. Though this may sound like an imaginary, far-fetched masjid, in reality, I constructed this masjid based on the authentic ahadith 
of the mosque of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 1400 years ago. Every single piece of that imaginary masjid, we have an authentic hadith to tell us that that is how the Prophet Sallallahu treated the people in his masjid. This is the community that he built. This was the model that he gave for us to emulate year after year, generation after generation. Today, people believe that the masjid is a place where only prayer takes place. Therefore, it becomes an, a club for the elite religious when in fact, in the days of the Prophet ﷺ, it was the place for the hurting souls to find solace, for the sinners to find someone who will advise them, for the men, for the women, for the youth for the disabled, for every person from every walk of life, they were invited into this masjid and they loved their masjid and they had a connection with their masjid. So let's then take a journey 1400 years ago to look through the authentic ahadith to understand what did the mosque of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam look like from the, from the seerah, from the ahadith. The first topic we will cover is the women in the masjid. In Sahih Bukhari and Muslim, it mentions that women attended the prayers regularly in the masjid, Fajr prayer and Isha prayer and the prayers in between, that women had made i'tikaf in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, which means they stayed overnight in the mosque of the Prophet ﷺ for 10 straight days. This was at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. And this was in a masjid where there was no barrier in between the men and the women. Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu narrates in a hadith that one day I walked into the masjid and I saw one row of men and two rows of women. And then he backtracks and said, no, I think it was two rows of men and one row of women. What do we see? The moment he's walked into a masjid, he sees both the men and the women congregants in one space, in one area. That was the mosque of the Prophet But he goes on. It's important to hear this, this, this tiny, the tiny little details in this story he tells. So he says, so we went to pray and the Prophet led us in the prayer. And after the prayer, he turns around and faces the congregation and he addresses the congregation and he asks the men a question and nobody answers. Nobody's able to give an answer. And so then it says, then he addresses the women in his congregation and a woman from amongst the, the women of the Sahabiyat stands up, gets on her knees, and she answers the Prophet ﷺ. Women in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ had direct access to answer questions and then vice versa, ask questions. They had a place in their masjid where they felt like they could go to their imam and they could ask questions and they could be a part of that congregation and they can raise their hand afterwards to say, I have an inquiry that I'd like answered. I need advice in some sort of situation. There's a story in, in uh, the books of Ahadith which mentioned the rope of Zainab. So one day the Prophet ﷺ walks into the masjid and between two pillars there's a rope and he says, what is this rope? What is, what is the reason for this rope? And it says in the narration, the Sahaba said, and the word in Arabic for my Arabic students, means a whole bunch of men and women answered from amongst the Sahaba. So it means men and women are answering and they know whose rope this is. They say this is the rope of Zainab. When she gets tired and she's making her nafil prayers, she holds on to the rope so she can keep on standing to continue her prayer. The Prophet ﷺ, upon hearing this doesn't say, how dare you know the name of a woman in your masjid? How dare you were to turn around and even know whose rope this was that you were to see this woman in this act of ibadah? No, the Prophet ﷺ says and gives the advice, well, the next time that one of you is tired when they're praying, just take some rest and then get up again when you are no longer tired. That moment the Prophet ﷺ could have taught us and said that was inappropriate. That men, in, that men had seen Zainab praying. He didn't say it was inappropriate. He said what he had to say to help them with this act of ibadah.
In the khutbah of Umar radiallahu anhu, after the ta death of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Umar radiallahu anhu had decided, he had made a community decision that the mahar was getting too high, that women were asking for a mahar that was too high. And so he says on the mimbar in the khutbah, he says, the mahar is, is too high and we need to limit it. You can't ask for such a high mahar. In the khutbah of Umar radiallahu anhu, a woman, from behind, not from behind a barrier, but in the same room, stands up and says, how can you limit that which Allah has not put a limit to? And Umar radiallahu anhu thinks about it for a second, and he says, you have spoken the truth, and Umar has made a mistake. In the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu with the khalifa of the Muslims, a woman felt valued enough that her voice could be heard in the masjid. And we're not saying that she was supposed to talk in the khutbah. Actually, that's not from the etiquette of the khutbah. Nobody is supposed to speak when the khatib is speaking. But even in that moment, Umar radiallahu anhu doesn't rebuke her for what she has done wrong, rather accepts that she has, has said what is right and I will give her her right. In the mosque of the Prophet وسلم, and even after his death, at the time of the Khalifa of Umar, women felt a part and valued in their community that they could speak up when wrongs, when they felt that wrongs were going against them. They knew their rights so that their rights were not trampled upon. The Prophet وسلم, in his masjid, he valued women for their skills and abilities and not necessarily just their gender. And so when in Medina, the first mimbar had to be made for the, khut, for the khatib to stand at. The Prophet asks the people of the masjid, who can make a mimbar for me? Who has the best resources? And Sahal, a man from amongst the Sahaba says, I know a woman. And this is in the books of authentic ahadith that the Prophet doesn't say, you know, this is a masjid matter, don't, don't involve the woman. He says, bring her to me. And this woman from amongst the Sahaba comes to the Prophet ﷺ and says, okay, I'll get the job done. And she goes and she, she, she has her carpenters who bring the best wood and the best fashion and they make the mimbar that sat in the Prophet ﷺ masjid that he did the khutbah at every Jummah after that. That was from the Prophet ﷺ seeing the skills of this woman and not necessarily her gender. The Prophet ﷺ appointed a woman, a black Abyssinian woman as the caretaker of his entire masjid. There was a woman named Ummu Mehjan who took care of the masjid. She cleaned it, she put the bukhur, she took care of it, everything. You could say she's the groundskeeper, the caretaker. The Prophet saw her every day in the masjid and she, he valued this woman and he put her in such a position because he valued her. One day the Prophet walks into the masjid and he sees that she's not there. And he asks the Sahaba, where is Umm Mahjan? I haven't seen her. And they say, sorry, she actually passed away a few days ago. Sorry, we didn't let you know. We, we already prayed the janazah and she's already been buried. The Prophet ﷺ becomes upset. Did you not think it was important to inform me of this? They perhaps did not see the value of this woman, of this black Abyssinian woman, but the Prophet ﷺ valued her. She was the caretaker of his masjid, and so the Prophet ﷺ goes to her grave. Even though they've prayed the janazah, he goes to her grave and prays his own personal salat al-janazah over Ummu Mahjan. This is how the Prophet ﷺ showed how he valued women in his community. This is why the women were given an entire day. They asked, Ya Rasulullah, we want a day. You get to spend every day with the men. Just give us one day. And the Prophet ﷺ immediately appoints one day out of the week for a special women's halaqa. No men are allowed into this gathering. Only the women. You can have all of your questions answered. This value of women is seen at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, and it carries over to the time of the Khulafa. So that when Uthman, when Umar radiallahu anhu is passing away, he's, he creates a delegation of six men to be deciding on who's going to be the next Khalifa of the entire Muslim Ummah. And so from amongst these six, there's a couple who are out of town, and then there are two who say, I'm not going to be a part of this. And so what's left is three men, Uthman radiallahu anhu, Ali radiallahu anhu, and Abdurrahman bin Auf. 
Abdurrahman bin Auf says, I'm also taking myself out of this, but what I will do is, I see you, Ali and Uthman, as the most suitable for the job, but I'm going to get a vote from amongst the people. And it says in the history book of Ibn Kathir that he went to the homes of the male Sahaba and the female Sahaba and knocked on their doors and asked between Ali and Uthman, who do you think should be the next Khalifa? In the political matters of who's going to be the next Khalifa of the Muslim Ummah, the people believed that it was important to get the vote of the women. 1400 years ago, this is almost, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before the women were given the vote in the Western world. Abdurrahman bin Auf saw that it was important because he understood how the Prophet valued the women in his community, that it was important to get their decision in the election of the next Khalifa. But somehow in our communities, we feel like it's not even important to get the opinion of the women about anything on, on any matter or putting them on the boards of the shura or putting them um, you know, in positions where they're able to voice their opinions when they thought it was important enough to say who is the next Khalifa, we're gonna ask the women as well, then we have to take lesson from this model. Now I know what you're thinking. At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, these were the Sahaba. They could be in a masjid with no barrier because there was no fitna at that time. They were the most amazing of people and that is correct. They are the most amazing of people. But they were also human. And that's why what is narrated from, uh, from the Sahaba about the Sahaba is that there were from amongst the people who lived at the time of the Prophet ﷺ who experienced fitna. A man came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, I committed zina. A woman who was pregnant said, I committed zina. These are at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. The fitna and the temptations those are part of human nature. They, 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 they were there at that time and they exist today, definitely in different forms, but they existed at that time. And yet even though those, those um, confessions came to the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't decide at that moment to erect a barrier and say, let's hide one portion of the entire community away. Let's put them away and lock them away, and so then therefore we will not have this fitna. What he decided to do was he kept the women in the masjid. He kept their voices being heard. He kept their, their value in the masjid and he said, well, we're just gonna have to deal with this. The ayat of lowering your gaze were revealed. The, the ahadith mentioning how the women would dress were revealed and so we have these guidelines of how we should act in our masajid, in our community, and therefore then we can all still be valued parts of our communities. In fact, there was even fitna in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ to the point where it is narrated in Sahih ibn Hibban that there was a woman whom they called Al-Mar'atul Hasana, the beautiful woman. The, the Sahaba mention about her in multiple ahadith and they say there was a beautiful woman who used to come to the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ and there were men who were so attracted to her beauty that they would wait to join the saf until they would get the very last saf. They would get the very last row, so that ida raka'a ra'aha, so that maybe if they went into ruku, they may have gotten a glimpse of this mysterious, beautiful woman that people were talking about. When the Prophet ﷺ hears of this, he does not say, that's the end of that, barrier going up, don't ever, you know, women don't come to the masjid, there's too much fitna. When there is a, a known fitna to him, the Prophet ﷺ says to the men, the front rows are the better rows. And he says to the women, the, the, the back rows are the better rows for you. There were wealthy men from amongst the Sahaba who could have easily bought a curtain and put it up. But the Prophet ﷺ, who was a model for us 1400 years ago, and is a model for us today in our society, and was a model for them 700 years ago in a different society, he did what he did so that we understood the need for these kinds of settings in our masajid. People say today a barrier is needed, segre complete segregation is needed, or we, we don't need the opinions of the women. Actually, Umar radiallahu anhu said, you know, before Islam came, we never let the women into any of our affairs. But now that Islam came, it has changed. Women were not let into the political affairs, not let into the, the trade affairs or anything of that nature. But when Islam came, it was Islam that came that changed that. 
to the point that Umar anhu in the marketplace of Mecca and Medina appoints Shifa bint Abdullah and Samra bint Nuhaik, two females, as the police women of the marketplace of Mecca and Medina. And it is said that Samra walked around with a whip in her hand, making sure that people were doing right and they were not cheating and they were not monopolizing the marketplace. This, these were women who were given authority over both men and women in a public arena. If we don't have women included in the masjid and feel valued in the masjid and feel they have a say in the masjid, then how will we ever address the women's issues? If we say women are dressing inappropriately, well, how is the imam ever going to know that that takes place if he doesn't see the women in his congregation? How can a man correct a man, another man's wandering eyes if he doesn't see that taking place? If the only place that's taking place is outside of the masjid, how does he help with those situations if he doesn't see them inside of the masjid? How do our children learn how to appropriately interact with the other gender if we never give them healthy uh, opportunities where they have to learn that by the way when a woman goes by you should lower your gaze when a woman goes by you should open the door when another woman goes by you should say salam how can I help you because that is how they acted at the time of the Prophet when we completely segregate both, gen both genders what happens is and I've, we've experienced this all ourselves Boys and girls growing, grow up not knowing at all how to interact with Muslims of the opposite gender. Perhaps we know how to interact with non-Muslims of the opposite gender because we see that every day at school. They're high-fiving one another, they're hugging one another. We understand that's how we would interact in that case. But as for Muslims of, this, of the opposite gender, people have no idea what to do. And so what happens is when finally our teenagers become adults and they get into the MSA, they see Muslims of the opposite gender they have to work with for the first time and they don't understand how to interact. And what op often happens is the hormones go wild and they, 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 because they haven't been taught the correct etiquette of how you're supposed to interact with a Muslim of the opposite gender, then all of this craziness ensues. <clears throat> At the time of the Prophet Wasallam, women were given a voice in the masjid. But what is normal and what we see throughout our history is that at one time, at the golden era, everything was good and the Prophet completed the deen for us and then slowly and slowly our cultures and traditions start trickling into the religion itself where we cannot uh, take apart what is culture and what is actually the religion. And so at some point in the Muslim world, women were barred from the masjid altogether. What this represents, this barring of women from the masjid together in places like India, in Pakistan, in South Africa, my own home country, this is a barring from understanding the deen altogether. If a woman does not have access to the masjid where she can learn her deen, then how is she supposed to teach the children about the deen? And how is she supposed to know her rights so that her rights are not trampled upon? The Prophet ﷺ was fighting against a culture even in his time. There were men who were saying to their women, don't come to the masjid. And the Prophet ﷺ had to come out and say, La tamna'u ima Allahi min masajidillah. Do not stop, stop forbidding the women from coming to the masjid. It was such a regular occurrence. But you can imagine this culture is going to continue. If it, if it was occurring while the Prophet ﷺ is alive, it will continue for generation and generation to come. And so even one generation after the Prophet ﷺ has passed away, the grandchild of Umar ibn al-Khattab, uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab, um, Bilal ibn Abdullah ibn Umar, there's a conversation mentioned in the history books about his grandson, his grandson and his father Abdullah. And so he says, uh, Abdullah says to his son, the Prophet ﷺ said, do not stop your women from coming to the masjid. And Bilal says to him, to his own father, he says, no, but I will surely stop my women from coming to the masjid. It says the next line in the history books say, فَسَبَّهُ سَبَّنْ عَظِيمًا Then he cursed his son a great cursing. How dare you say what you just said when I told you what the Prophet ﷺ said about women in the masjid. It was a norm, it was a part of their culture, a part of their traditions, a part of human nature to try to put one above the other. That is what we're fighting, they were fighting 1400 years ago, racism sexism, uh, you know, differences in people's age, not pe giving people position. The Prophet ﷺ gave people in different position, in different um, uh, social stratas, all different positions to show these people are important. Bilal is given the position, the honored position of the Mu'addin. 
Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, a blind man, is given the position of the second Mu'addin and the deputy of the city when everyone leaves. Ummu Mahjan is given the position, a black Abyssinian woman, as the caretaker of the masjid. The Prophet ﷺ was putting people in positions to fight against this culture, this nafs, this, this desire to put one above the other. <clears throat> Alhamdulillah, we're in the masjid. We're actually in the masjid. We're all here in the masjid. And in a wonderful, beautiful, amazing masjid like this, women do have a voice. And women do have the opportunity to, to give their questions and ask for advice. We have amazing opportunities here. And this can be a masjid that is a role model for many other masajid. But we can't deny the fact that this is a masjid that is unlike many other masajid. Many in the United States and many in the world where women are put as second-class citizens and not given a voice, a choice. They are sitting in the back rooms with the lights completely closed for fear that a man might look in, even though at the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, there wasn't even a barrier. There was, there was no dark lights to, to turn off at that point. What we have to do and we have to do is we have to change and shift our paradigms to realign with the prophetic model. Because the reality is when we, when we go away from the prophetic model, either too, too strict or too liberal, what ends up happening is you lose people. And so what I have, I've been in a position where many women have come up to me and said, I have left the masjid, I'll never come back to the masjid because I was treated like this. I came to the masjid once and this happened to me and I, could, I can never take that. I don't feel like anyone cares about me in this masjid. That is how a woman feels in the masjid when she is not heard, when her voice is not heard, when things are not taken into consideration about her. That is how so many women feel. And in fact, there are women who have said to me, after hearing about these ahadith, they say, you know what, I was about to start a woman's mosque. I was about, about to start a women's only mosque because I thought that was the only solution. But now that I know that the model of the Prophet ﷺ was so beautiful and so inviting, what I'm going to do is try to rally my masjid to try to follow the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. These issues don't come out of a vacuum. These women masajid, women imams, and things of that nature, they come because we go one, one, or, other, one or other side of the extreme. Nobody is going to the middle path. We have to always remember the Prophet ﷺ was a model for all of time. And his model is the best model. And when we stray from that is when we find ourselves in difficulties. The children in the mosque of the Prophet ﷺ. In the mosque of the Prophet ﷺ, when he heard the crying of a child, he would shorten his prayer and he says, why? Not because it's disturbing me. He says, because I have mercy to be merciful to that mother. That perhaps she's having a difficult time take care, taking care of her child. Out of mercy for that mother, he would shorten his prayer. When the Prophet ﷺ one day walked into the masjid, it is narrated that he walked into the masjid holding his young granddaughter in his hands and he goes to the front of the masjid and leads the people in the prayer holding a young baby girl in his hand. How many Imams have led the prayer doing such and why would the Prophet ﷺ do that? To show that it's okay for there to be children in the masjid. And it is mentioned in the hadith that when he went into sujood, he put her on the ground and when he got back up, he picked her back up. This is the action of any parent, any mother, any father who has, a, who has a young child. They know that it's difficult to pray with a child. Yet the Prophet ﷺ shows with his example that he put the child down. And now the child is squirming and crying, so he picks the child back up. This was how the Prophet ﷺ taught the people that it's okay for children to be in the masjid. Hassan and Hussein, his, grand, his grandsons, are playing in the masjid with the Prophet ﷺ when he's even leading the people in prayer to the point that one, one day he's in a sujood that is pretty long and finally he gets up. Afterwards, the Sahaba asked, why was it such a long sujood? He said that uh, Hassan and Hussein were on my, were, sit, were like, you know, think about every child who likes to go when you're in sujood, they jump on your back and play horsey. They were essentially playing horsey on the Prophet ﷺ's back and he says, I didn't want to inconvenience them, so I waited till they got off until I came back up. That is how the Prophet ﷺ treated children in his masjid. There is a story of a woman who on the day of Ashura, 
She brings her children to the masjid. The Prophet has called everyone to come to the masjid. We're going to break our fast in the masjid at Maghrib time. And in the nuances of the hadith, you hear this. She says, so we brought our children to the masjid. And when they weeped and cried, we gave them toys so that hopefully they would be able to wait until the prayer time. So there was a woman in the masjid with little children who were crying and toys in the masjid for those little children. We imagine that the children from the Sahaba were superhumans, that they didn't cry, that they didn't make a noise, that they didn't ever run around because they must have been superhuman. They were normal children, normal children cry, normal children play, but they were still regularly in the masjid of the Prophet and slowly being taught the etiquette. And so when they cried, they were given a toy. And when they kept on crying, they were held. And when they kept on crying, the Prophet ﷺ shortened his prayer. But never once does he turn around and say, by the way, women and children, which I've heard myself in the masjid on my own, I heard this, by the way, women and children, you're making so much noise. Wouldn't it be better, better if you just stayed at home? For a mother of three, four young children who hasn't come to the masjid for years on end because her child is one years old, two years old, three years old. One day she finally gets the courage to go to the masjid and what happens? Her children, obviously, inevitably, they cry. And what happens is the stares from amongst the women in the room come to her and she feels like she never wants to come to the masjid again. And the, the speaker comes over and says, by the way, if your children are being so loud, why don't you just go home? And that mother may never come to the masjid ever in her life again. Yet that mother may be someone who's in the most spiritual need of going to the masjid because all she sees all day are one, two, three-year-old children who say no and I don't want to do it and they're not listening to her. She perhaps needs that spiritual respite, but we have scared mothers away from the masjid. When in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, he had children in the masjid, he brought his children, he brought his grandchildren, and he was showing the people that it was okay. How are we supposed to have children whose hearts are attached to the masjid and be amongst those who are under the shade of Allah on the day of judgment when the moment we see them, we look at them with stern eyes and we say, you shouldn't be here. Where's your mother? Of course, there's a responsibility on the parents to teach the etiquette to the children. Absolutely. Children shouldn't be ripping up the, the, the Qur'ans and shouldn't be jumping off the walls. But the reality is they will make noise and they will play. And at that moment, we teach them, this is the masjid. This is where we are quiet. And I kid you not, the reality I've seen myself is that when my son is in the back room over there and there is no actual khatib that he can see, he's running around and playing and screaming. But when I'm in a masjid where he can see the khatib, all I have to do is say, look, uncle is talking. You have to be quiet. And immediately he realizes there's an authority figure and I have to learn to be quiet in this space. He understood because there was authority there to teach him that this was a place to be. But if we never bring the children to the masjid, then they don't find peace in it, they don't love it, and also they don't ever learn the etiquette of it. They can't be taught in a day. Children are, are beings of, of pattern. You train them one day after the other after the other. But if we are scaring mothers away from the masjid from the first moment they come, then we are, we are taking the children away from the masjid as well. And the last part I will mention before Mahad uh, talks about the other points, is that in my imaginary masjid, I said there was acrobats going on. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ one day, it was Eid day, it is mentioned in a hadith that he and Aisha are watching as the Abyssinians are playing with spears and they're doing all of these different kinds of activities in the masjid itself. In the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, there was a show going on and everyone was watching and everyone was enjoying and this was appropriate and okay and the Prophet ﷺ accepted this and is watching it with Aisha radiallahu anha, putting her head on his shoulder. There was a time where there were people who wanted to do poetry in the masjid and Umar radiallahu anhu says, this is not the place for poetry and the Prophet ﷺ says, let it be, it's okay. And people said poetry in the masjid. These were forms of entertainment of the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. There's a Sahih narration where it talks about that after the uh, Fajr prayer, all the, a lot of the Sahaba would sit around and just chat. And they said, we'd sit and talk and laugh about the days of Jahiliyyah and the silly things we used to do. And it said the Prophet ﷺ sometimes sat with us 
and he smiled, and he enjoyed the conversation. People came to the masjid to enjoy themselves, to even socialize, dare I say. So when we hear people talking in the masjid and say, you came here just to talk and chat? Well, the Prophet ﷺ sat in circles where they just came to talk and chat and catch up. And the Prophet ﷺ sat in those gatherings and enjoyed, and he smiled alongside with them. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم إن شاء الله ماهر will take up the second portion. السلام عليكم. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله. One thing that we have to understand about the Prophet of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم is that he came with a default setting that all of us are trying to embody and encompass as well. What is this? This is what Allah سبحانه وتعالى tells us in Surah Al-Anbiya. بعد أن أقول أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وما أرسلناك إلا رحمة وما أرسلناك إلا رحمة للعالمين الله سبحانه وتعالى says that we have not sent you يا رسول الله except as a mercy to all of mankind when we think للعالمين, we're not talking about just the men, we're not talking about just the women, we're not talking about just the kids, we're not talking about just the believers. Allah says to all of mankind, to all of creation. The Prophet of Allah his default setting, his default quality, his characteristic was of mercy. And that is something that we as followers of the Prophet of Allah have to embody as well. The Prophet of Allah taught us, الرَّاحِمُونَ يَرْحَمُهُمُ الرَّحْمَانَ Those who are merciful, Ar-Rahman, the abundantly merciful will be merciful to them. And he says, Irhamu man fil ardi. Have mercy on whoever is on the earth, and what will happen? Yarhamkum man fil sama. The one who's in the heavens will have mercy on you. And this is something that we have to look at. The Prophet of Allah said, if you look at every one of these stories, it shows his mercy, his kindness, his relatability, his care for other individuals in the community that might be seen as marginalized members of the community. Those who are seen as maybe they don't have too much to offer in the community. But the Prophet of Allah would empower them and make sure that they felt that they were welcomed and part of the community. There's one hadith of the Prophet of Allah, I feel like every single Islamic center should have this uh, kind of written out somewhere. The Prophet of Allah says, This is in Sahih Bukhari and Muslim. The Prophet of Allah says, Facilitate ease and don't make things difficult. Give people glad tidings, uplift them, motivate them, inspire them, don't run them away. Right? I can tell you myself, I've met new Muslims who have literally been Muslims for maybe a matter of weeks and they've told me I've been kicked out of a masjid. I've been kicked out of a masjid because of doing this or that. I didn't know and somebody got upset at me and they, they kicked me out of the masjid. The Prophet of Allah is teaching us that people will have different levels of Iman, they will have maybe different views from you. Maybe some things are not even correct Islamically. But he is saying, facilitate ease, give glad tidings, don't push them away. Because this house of Allah is where we come to connect with Allah. This house of Allah is where we come to learn and better ourselves. We don't expect that this house of Allah is for the perfect of Iman, right? It's not for those who have perfect Iman, it's for those who are coming to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's not a single one of us who can say, I am the role model, Re replicate me. We replicate the Prophet of Allah, we replicate his community. The Prophet of Allah is teaching us to facilitate ease in every single matter. Don't cause difficulty. And this hadith can be used in a much broader sense. It can be used when we talk about marriage, it can be used when we talk about families, relationships with our family members, that be able to make ease. Don't make things unnecessarily complicated. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to our relationships, how we talk to one another, but especially in the communities that we're in, it can be utilized as well. That when we see someone coming in, yes, maybe they might not know the protocol of the masjid, or they're not familiar with certain things that you're supposed to do in the masjid. A kid's coming with shorts very short, or maybe a hijab is falling off. We can talk to them in a kind way. We've seen so many incidents time and time again where people will say that I was doing something wrong in the masjid and an uncle or an auntie or someone young came up to me or someone who I never knew in my life, they came up to me and they started verbally abusing me and saying, what's wrong with you? Why did you come to the masjid like this? Didn't you have anything better to do? Didn't you have something better to wear? Right? And again, this could be the first time someone's showing up to the masjid. I remember myself, um, after giving a talk at a, a location, 
uh, one brother came up to me and said salam to me and he had an entire conversation with me. And at the end of this five minute conversation, he says, by the way, I wanted to just point out one thing. And he gave me some kind of uh, critique that he was gonna give me, but I appreciated that so much because he took the time out to say salam to me, introduce himself to me, have pleasantries, exchange some basic information that we felt this sense of a connection with one another instead of just him saying, by the way, I, your talk was good and all, but this is your problem, right? He didn't come up like that. He had a very wise approach. And this was the approach of the Prophet ﷺ. He was one that knew that change will take time. And when you see people for the first time, you can't just automatically just bombard them. You have no idea who they are and you, they have no idea who you are. You have to build a relationship first. Imagine if somebody in the middle of the road, you have no idea who they are. They start yelling at you or saying you're doing this incorrectly. First off, you say, who are you? I've never seen you in my life. Let alone, you're correcting me and you have no idea what's, what's, what's happening in my circumstance. There's one beautiful hadith the Prophet of Allah when he sends Mu'ad ibn Jabal to Yemen to go and talk to the Christians at the time, the people of the book. He tells them that when you go to them, tell them first and foremost that there's nothing worthy of worship except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that I am the messenger of Allah Obviously talking about, him, about himself. And he says that, and if they follow you in that, then tell them that Allah has mandated the five daily prayers for them in the day and the night. Then he says, and then if they follow you in that, then tell them that Allah has mandated a certain portion of charity from their wealth. And so on and so forth. But this is such an interesting hadith because the Prophet of Allah he knows that when Mu'ad is going to go, and talk to people that might not be very close to Islam or be receptive to Islam, he says, take it bit by bit. The Prophet of Allah is telling them, take it bit by bit. And this is a, a, a huge lesson for us. We can't expect that our kids, our spouses, will change overnight. It take, takes time for us to grow closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It takes time for us to be able to say, you know what? I will commit myself to praying five times a day. I will commit myself to not lying or cheating or stealing or wearing the hijab or making sure I am paying my zakah. It takes time to make that commitment. The Prophet of Allah knew this, that it would take time. And Ali radiallahu anhu even says that the statement of Ali radiallahu anhu is, um, an he says, uh, حَدِّثُ النَّاسَ بِمَا يَعْرِفُونَ أَتُحِبُّونَ أَنْ يُكَذِّبَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ He says that when you talk to individuals, regardless of who they are, talk to them according to their level. Because would you want someone to disbelieve in Allah and His Messenger just because you want above and beyond their level? They're maybe at basic level one, right? All they know is there's Allah, there's Islam, nothing else. And you tell them all of a sudden, for example, take the example of a convert, right? A new Muslim. The Muslim, come, the individual comes in, takes shahada. The very next day they're told, change your name. Uh, the type of income that you have, that's also haram. The type of clothing you're wearing, that's also haram. You need to start praying five times a day, learn the Arabic language. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You give them all of this and say, I'll see you in a week. See how you do, right? It's not something practical. That's not what was expected at all. The Prophet of Allah knew that it would take time. And that's not to say that the things that are mandatory upon us, meaning the five daily prayers, all of a sudden they don't become mandatory anymore. No, they're still mandatory. But the Prophet of Allah is teaching us, Ali is teaching us, the companions teach us time and time again, that we have to be able to gradually bring people in. If we tell people this is Islam in its entirety, if you can't follow all of it, we don't need you. That wasn't the case. We had so many companions, men and women, that would make mistakes, that would commit sins, that would have shortcomings. But the Prophet of Allah didn't exile them from the community. He didn't remove them from the community. There was a companion who was known to be drunk and he would be caught over and over again, stumbling in the streets. And this is after alcohol has been prohibited. And what would happen is this man would be brought to the Prophet of Allah over and over again. And he would be given the punishment for drunkenness, public drunkenness, time and time again. To the, to the point that when, finally when it happened so many times, one of the companions said, that may Allah curse this man. Doesn't he learn his lesson? What's wrong with this guy? And the Prophet of Allah, when he heard this, he said, don't say that. By Allah, you have no idea how much he loves Allah and his messenger. This drunk man, the Prophet of Allah standing up for a drunk man. If you and I saw a drunk man coming to the masjid, we might call the cops. We might try to get them kicked out. 
But the Prophet of Allah is saying, you have no idea how much love he has for Allah and his messenger. And this man didn't give up drinking in the life of the Prophet of Allah. He only gave up drinking after the death of the Prophet But he eventually gave up. And the Prophet of Allah believed in people. He knew that change wasn't going to happen like this. Just because you got a punishment once, twice, he got caught by his parents, or you can use another analogy, right? That getting caught and getting in trouble, it might be that you have to kind of say those kind words sometimes, those harsh words sometimes, try to keep pushing that person gently. But don't just be hopeless in them and say, I've given up on you. There's no change for you, right? You see people in the community and say, you know what? There's no hope for that individual. They're a lost cause. That's not what the Prophet of Allah taught us. Every single individual has the ability and the capability of changing for the better. Even though it might not be in our lifetimes. It might not be that from our words, but maybe later on, they'll have that change. And this is something beautiful that this man who was drunk in the life of the Prophet of Allah, he never got to see him as a sober individual. But after the death of the Prophet of Allah, he gave up drinking. And he gave up. Because of the fact that the Prophet of Allah believed him in him. Even though the companions had some strict words to say. And it's very important to understand that when the companions are saying harsh words, sometimes we see ourselves relating with the companions more so, right? We might say, yeah, what's wrong with this guy, man? The Prophet of Allah is giving him punishment after punishment. He doesn't learn his lesson. But the Prophet of Allah is teaching us, dig deeper for mercy. Dig deeper for hope. Dig deeper for kindness. Another example of this is the very famous example of the Bedouin man, the man who used to live in the desert. He came to the masjid for the very first time. And what does he do? He has to use the restroom. So the desert is a desert for the, for the, for the Arab uh, Bedouin, right? And he ends up using the restroom in the actual masjid of the Prophet of Allah. The companions get in this uproar and they're about to charge this man and get him out of the masjid. The Prophet of Allah says, stop, let him finish. Urinating in the masjid. Is urinating in the masjid allowed or not? Yes or no? No, it's not allowed. The Prophet of Allah is allowing something to happen which is not okay by any means. But there's a greater wisdom at hand. There's a greater wisdom at hand. He says, leave him alone. And imagine now, the man is using the restroom and he can hear all these things behind him. Men getting up, ready to go kick this individual out. The Prophet of Allah saying, stop. And when this man finally finishes, the Prophet of Allah says to the companions, go ahead, take some water, pour some water over it. And it'll be okay, we can pray over there again. It'll be clean, inshallah, after it dries up. And he takes the man aside. And he tells him about what the masjid is. He explains to him what Islam is, because this person's not a Muslim. And when he sees this beautiful explanation, how the Prophet of Allah gave him this care and this one-on-one -on -one attention, he right then and there says, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa annaka rasulullah. I testify that you, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one worthy of worship and you are the messenger of Allah. And he starts making dua. And he says, Ya Allah, have mercy on me and Muhammad and nobody else. <laughs> and the Prophet of Allah begins to like kind of smirk and he says that you've limited something that's very vast. The mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not just meant for two people. It's meant for beyond that. And he's trying to tell the guy, you know what? Forgive them. You know, it's a natural instinct. Because when we as Muslims see that something is being done against Islam, someone has said something about Allah or his messenger or the Quran, all of a sudden we get emotionally riled up, right? Someone does something wrong in the masjid, we say, hey, this is the masjid, what's wrong with you, right? But again, we have to remember, they're individuals, they're human beings. Maybe they don't know any better, or maybe they're making a mistake, maybe they don't have no idea what they're doing. The Prophet of Allah took this into consideration. And he would make sure, even though when the companions were ready to get this guy out of the masjid, he's teaching the companions, he's teaching us, that be more merciful with one another. And it's hard, it is very difficult. When you see a, a, a child running loose, right? It's very hard to hold yourself back. You're like, whose kid is this? Whose kid is it, right? Like you might have those inclinations, but there has to be certain a give and take from both sides, right? We have to be able to say, okay, you know what? We're going to be a bit lenient with this. But at the same time, being able to make portions and massages where it's like a mother's only room or a father's only room with the kids, a daddy room or a mommy room. Being able to facilitate for those individuals that want to come to the masjid. Or being able to have the older kids in the actual prayer space with us as well. Being able to show them how to pray as well. One of the biggest mistakes you could make is uh, getting the kids and putting them in their own line. That's a disaster. Don't ever do that. Make sure adults are in the middle of the kids so they are not messing around. They're not going to be looking at you and trying to like make you laugh. They're going to not be messing with you. But when they're together, all the kids together, it's, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Unless you have people there kind of monitoring them and stuff. So just for Ramadan's sake, when it comes up, inshallah, you guys will know what to do. 
The Prophet of Allah time and time again shows us how to be merciful at times when we wouldn't be able to contain ourselves. There was a young man who came to the Prophet of Allah and he asks him in the gathering like this where there are other adults present, he asks the Prophet of Allah, give me permission to commit zina. He asked the Prophet of Allah this. And the companions, as soon as they hear, they say, stop, stop, stop. Like, what's wrong with you? This is the Prophet of Allah. How could you ask this to the Prophet of Allah? The Prophet of Allah says to like leave him, and he says, come closer to me, right? In certain households, when you say, come closer to me, in this case, this is not a good, this is not a good sign. This is not what the Prophet of Allah is doing, by any means. He said, come closer to me. And he sat him down right in front of him. And he started speaking to him in a way that he would possibly understand. And he said, and I mean, even before I go into the conversation, the fact that a young man can feel comfortable enough with the Prophet of Allah to even have that discussion is a big thing. If you could imagine me being like, you know, a younger Imam, someone in the community, a young person coming up to me, I would be shocked if they came and said that kind of statement to me, right? It would be something that I wouldn't expect. It's okay, it's okay, inshallah. <laughs> so, it's something you wouldn't expect, but the Prophet of Allah now is in his mid to late 50s, if not older. And a young man's coming up, and he has this mindset that, look, I know this is haram. If anybody could make it halal, it would be the Prophet of Allah. So let me go and ask him. So he goes and he asks him, and the Prophet of Allah says, would you accept this for your own mother? And the man says, no, I wouldn't. And he says, would you accept this for your sister? And he says, no, I wouldn't. And he keeps going down the list and trying to explain to him that just as how you wouldn't like it for any of your female relatives, nobody else would like that either. Even though you have certain temptations and desires, the Prophet of Allah is telling him that rationally, that you have to be able to understand other people's concerns as well. And then he starts making dua for him. This is a beautiful combination the Prophet of Allah always refers to. The rational plus the spiritual. Time and time again, we're told by the Imams or by the religious leadership, just the spiritual. Say, A'udhu Billah and everything will be okay. The rational sometimes is not explained to the child, right? This is why we believe what we believe, or this is the wisdom behind what we believe. And the Prophet of Allah then makes dua and says, Ya Allah, help him and strengthen him. And the man then narrates and he says that after that moment, I didn't have that kind of desire or that, that intense of an urge. After the Prophet of Allah explained it to me and he made dua for me. And this goes to show us, Again, the Prophet of Allah is willing to bring in people in the community that might be controversial, right? You might look at someone in the community and say, oh, that in the actual masjid, the Prophet of Allah. The companions get in this uproar and they're about to charge this man and get him out of the masjid. The Prophet of Allah says, stop, let him finish. Urinating in the masjid. Is urinating in the masjid allowed or not? Yes or no? No, it's not allowed. The Prophet of Allah is allowing something to happen which is not okay by any means. But there's a greater wisdom at hand. There's a greater wisdom at hand. He says, leave him alone. And imagine now, the man is using the restroom and he can hear all these things behind him. Men getting up, ready to go kick this individual out. The Prophet of Allah saying, stop. And when this man finally finishes, the Prophet of Allah says to the companions, go ahead, take some water, pour some water over it. And it'll be okay. We can pray over there again. It'll be clean inshallah after it dries up. And he takes the man aside and he tells him about what the masjid is. He explains to him what Islam is because this person is not a Muslim. And when he sees this beautiful explanation, how the Prophet of Allah gave him this care and this one-on-one -on -one attention, he right then and there says, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa annaka rasulullah. I testify that you, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one worthy of worship and you are the messenger of Allah. And he starts making dua. And he says, Ya Allah have mercy on me and Muhammad and nobody else. <laughs> and the Prophet of Allah begins to like kind of smirk and he says that you've limited something that's very vast. The mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not just meant for two people. It's meant for beyond that. And he's trying to tell the guy, you know what? Forgive them, you know? It's a natural instinct. Because when we as Muslims see that something is being done against Islam, someone has said something about Allah or his messenger or the Quran, all of a sudden we get emotionally riled up, right? Someone does something wrong in the masjid, we say, hey, this is the masjid, what's wrong with you, right? But again, we have to remember, they're individuals, they're human beings. Maybe they don't know any better, or maybe they're making a mistake, maybe they don't have no idea what they're doing. The Prophet of Allah took this into consideration. And he would make sure, even though when the companions are ready to get this guy out of the masjid, he's teaching the companions, he's teaching us that be more merciful with one another. And it's hard, it is very difficult. 
When you see a, a, a child running loose, right? It's very hard to hold yourself back. You're like, whose kid is this? Whose kid is it, right? Like you might have those inclinations, but there has to be certain, a give and take from both sides, right? We have to be able to say, okay, you know what? We're going to be a bit lenient with this. But at the same time, being able to make portions and massages where it's like a mother's only room or a father's only room with the kids, a daddy room or a mommy room. Being able to facilitate for those individuals that want to come to the masjid or being able to have the older kids in the actual prayer space with us as well. Being able to show them how to pray as well. One of the biggest mistakes you could make is uh, getting the kids and putting them in their own line. That's a disaster. Don't ever do that. Make sure adults are in the middle of the kids so they are not messing around. They're not going to be looking at you and trying to like make you laugh. They're going to not be messing with you. But when they're together, all the kids together, it's, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Unless you have people there kind of monitoring them and stuff. So just for Ramadan's sake, when it comes up, inshallah, you guys will know what to do. The Prophet of Allah time and time again shows us how to be merciful at times when we wouldn't be able to contain ourselves. There was a young man who came to the Prophet of Allah and he asks him in the gathering like this where there are other adults present he asks the Prophet of Allah give me permission to commit zina he asked the Prophet of Allah this and the companions soon as they hear this they say stop 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 like what's wrong with you this is the Prophet of Allah how could you ask this to the Prophet of Allah the Prophet of Allah says to like leave him and he says come closer to me right in certain households, when you say, come closer to me, in this case, this is, not a good, this is not a good sign. This is not what the Prophet of Allah is doing, by any means. He said, come closer to me. And he sat him down right in front of him. And he started speaking to him in a way that he would possibly understand. And he said, and I mean, even before I go into the conversation, the fact that a young man can feel comfortable enough with the Prophet of Allah to even have that discussion is a big thing. If you could imagine me being, like, you know, a younger imam, someone in the community, a young person coming up to me, I would be shocked if they came and said that kind of statement to me, right? It would be something that I wouldn't expect. It's okay, it's okay, inshallah. <laughs> so, it's something you wouldn't expect, but the Prophet of Allah now is in his mid to late 50s, if not older. And a young man's coming up, and he has this mindset that, look, I know this is haram. If anybody could make it halal, it would be the Prophet of Allah. So let me go and ask him. So he goes and he asks him, and the Prophet of Allah says, would you accept this for your own mother? And the man says, no, I wouldn't. And he says, would you accept this for your sister? And he says, no, I wouldn't. And he keeps going down the list and trying to explain to him that just as how you wouldn't like it for any of your female relatives, nobody else would like that either. Even though you have certain temptations and desires, the Prophet of Allah is telling him that rationally, that you have to be able to understand other people's concerns as well. And then he starts making dua for him. This is a beautiful combination the Prophet of Allah always refers to. The rational plus the spiritual. Time and time again we're told by the Imams or by the religious leadership, just the spiritual. Say, A'udhu Billah and everything will be okay. The rational sometimes is not explained to the child, right? This is why we believe what we believe. Or this is the wisdom behind what we believe. And the Prophet of Allah then makes dua and says, Ya Allah, help him and strengthen him. And the man then narrates and he says that after that moment, I didn't have that kind of desire or that, that intense of an urge. After the Prophet of Allah explained it to me and he made dua for me. And this goes to show us, again, the Prophet of Allah is willing to bring in people in the community that might be controversial, right? You might look at someone in the community and say, oh, that, that guy or that, that woman, they always cause controversy in the masjid. And you start telling people around you, don't go talk to them, don't, don't hang around them and stuff, right? Because they cause controversy. No, it shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't be boycotting anybody. If there are certain problems and concerns and issues, then we should take that individual aside. And kindly, maybe even after dinner, some of the best times you can get advice is when someone's paying for your meal. <laughs> you won't say too much afterwards, right? You take them aside, you give them a gift, you give them some kind words, and you take them aside and you talk about your concerns. But this idea of boycotting one another was not something that the Prophet of Allah allowed or accepted in the community. No matter how far off you are from the rest of the community or society, we will still accept you over here. No matter how different you are from the community. And talking about different, we can look at the examples of the poor individuals, the people that didn't have homes. Homeless individuals were actually allowed to stay in the masjid of the Prophet of Allah and they were called Ahl Sufa, the people of the Saf. Ahl Sufa. And these were individuals that would live in the masjid and some numbers put them at almost 400 individuals. Not all at once, but at different times. 400 different individuals were living in this masjid. 
at some point or another where they couldn't afford to live somewhere else and they were some of the closest students of the Prophet of Allah they were individuals that were taken care of by the Prophet of Allah as well as the community members. And they were seen as valuable members because they were the ones who were the teachers. They were the ones who were the students. They were the ones who were actually bringing value to the masjid as well. They weren't just seen as individuals that, oh, they're beggars and they just stay here, they have no purpose. No, they would actually go sometimes and educate Umar They would go and educate individuals that were working full time. They would go and spend time with them and be able to tell them, this is what we learned with the Prophet of Allah today. And they would be used, utilized in their way as well. There's also incidents that we have where the Prophet of Allah would host interfaith, which mashallah, Maria Masjid is known for interfaith, mashallah, out of all the masajid over here. He would host delegations from different parts of the area. From Najran, there was a delegation of about 60 to 70 Christians that came and stayed and camped in and around the masjid of the Prophet SubhanAllah, non-Muslims being able to stay. And think about this, they are Christians, they're not Muslims. They are still praying, they're doing their worship, acts of worship. They're doing those things and the Prophet of Allah is allowing this in and around the masjid of the Prophet When we look at the masjid of the Prophet we always see that there is a shining example for us. We will never be able to say that yes, this one masjid in that city, in this country is replicating that to a, to a T. You know why we can't do it? Because we don't have the Prophet of Allah. We don't have the Prophet of Allah with us. And there will be certain issues in every single masjid. There will be goods and bads. But our goal is to see that, look, wherever our masjid is at, whichever masjid we're in, how can we get it closer to the prophetic model? How can we get it that we feel that more and more people are feeling included? And this is an inclusive masjid. That the men feel welcomed, the women feel welcomed, the youth feel welcomed. People that are new Muslims, there is care for them. That there is continual care and follow up with them. There's not a single member of the community except there's a place for them. Maybe the seniors, maybe the stay-at-home mothers, maybe individuals that are uh, working professionals and they need some spirituality. There's a place for them and a time for them. We also see the final, I think, example we'll give, time is running away from us, but the final example I can mention is that the Prophet of Allah, one thing that he would do, which is very, very beautiful, is that he would pair together individuals from the Muhajirun, those who migrated, and those who were already in Medina. What was the purpose of this? We had individuals that had to flee their homes, like refugees, right? And you can make so many different examples of this. People that are maybe not of the same financial background. Maybe they don't have uh, the, the same opportunities as you. But the Prophet of Allah would pair up these families, people that were local and people that had to migrate in. And the purpose of this was to build a stronger community. Building a stronger community doesn't just happen in the masajid, but also happens in our homes. How we build a stronger community is by the individuals that we see in the masajid, inviting them over. Even though we might have seen them for years and years and years in the masjid, right? But we haven't maybe gotten to meet their family members. Our kids haven't interacted, we haven't had them over for dinner. Being able to have this community feel is something that we have to strive for first and foremost in our own homes and be able to implement in our masajid as well. There's so many other incidents that we can mention over here. Maybe inshallah we can have another day where we can talk about how the Prophet treated with, uh, acted with the community members. But inshallah we can leave some time for Q&A if you have any questions inshallah right now. Um, otherwise I think we'll figure out if we'll figure out what the food if you can ask. Okay. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us and be able to increase us in our mercy. First and foremost to our family members and kindness to our family members and love to our family members as well as our community members and be able to help us embody this masjid, this example that the Prophet of Allah left behind for us. And the example of the Prophet of Allah is not just in the acts of worship, but how he interacted with people around how we interacted in the masjid, how we interacted with individuals. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us of our shortcomings, forgive us of those things that we do intentionally and unintentionally. We ask you, Allah, to help those who are being oppressed all around the world, Ya Allah. We ask you, Allah, to help them and strengthen them, Ya Allah, and remove the oppressors. We ask you, Allah, to raise us on the day of judgment with the Prophet Wasallam and to grant us Jannah, Ya Allah, and enter us into Jannah where we have no sadness, no grief, Ya Allah. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifuna wa salamun ala al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. If you have any questions, inshallah, feel free to ask. Otherwise, uh, we can get the update on food soon, inshallah, hopefully.